I invite your attention to John 17. This is the great chapter of prayer, one of the great chapters in the Bible where Jesus is actually praying to his Father in heaven. John chapter 17. We will read just two verses. John 17, 21 and 22. Earlier in this chapter, the words from Jesus were, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. We continue on now with verses 21 and 22. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Those are powerful words that, that uh, Dr. Dean just read to us about, and something I hope you'll think about all day today and maybe go to the passage itself and look at it. We're looking through our doctrines. We have 28 doctrines in Seventh-day Adventist Church. They're composed of various different groups. And... Um, Theoretically and religiously, they're supposed to be teaching us about God. Not necessarily about our behavior, but about God. And um, just a quick review here. Seventh-day Adventists had a great deal of resistance throughout most of its history to even establishing a set of doctrines. And they finally, in 1861, uh, the list, uh, even though the church was organized in 1861, the doctrinal list was first formalized 85 years later in 1946. Took us a long time to get there. <laughs> and I just wanted to remind you that beliefs have consequences. They serve as gatekeepers in the mind. What you believe gets in. What you don't believe doesn't get in. So beliefs really are gatekeepers. They assist us in the formation of character and values. Because when you let something in, your character and your values are directly affected by what you let in. Beliefs open and close that door. Now, we talked about polytheism, monotheism, and Trinitarianism. Depending on your view of God, whether you believe God is many gods, or whether you believe that God is one God, or whether you believe in a Trinitarian view of God, has a vast impact upon our thinking and who we become. Because, as I said last uh, two weeks ago, I guess it was, um, those that have this view of many gods have a detached, distant view of God. And oftentimes, for some reason or another, those gods are not very friendly, and they're uh, capricious, and they're judgmental, and they just act impulsively. And, and it seems like the worst qualities you'd ever expect to find anywhere are in those gods. And so that has a direct effect upon the people who feel that that is what God is like, that's the model. And if you have monotheism, usually those churches tend to be very, very strict and very centered about what is right, very rigid. And the end result of that is you've got people that are very demanding, very legalistic, and very rigid. Now, what's the difference between Trinitarianism? The difference between Trinitarianism is you've got three gods who have no need to be connected. They are independent. They are God themselves. They have no need of each other whatsoever. And yet they've chosen to submerge their lives into each other. And the three have become one. That's an amazing concept. 
When you have marriage and two separate people, male and female, getting together and becoming one, you have a little bit of a taste of what God is like. And what do we do in those kind of relationships? We soon learn that those two people can no longer stay separate. They've got to merge. And they become something totally different and something a lot bigger and better than if they were individuals. Do you, do you believe that? And so marriage is pretty much a template. It is a, 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 a workshop for uh, becoming like God in, in a lot of ways because that's what God is. Just amazing. And so if you have this view, by the way, a view that our denomination fought against accepting for a long, 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 long time. But if you have that view of God, it has a direct relationship upon everything else you do. By the way, what else does the Trinity talk about? It talks about getting along. It talks about not establishing your rights and your opinions, but rather here you have the model and the example of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit submitting and surrendering and working together and yielding together. How important that is. And so this is why this doctrine is so much more important than we usually think of it. We are made in God's image, therefore we must be relational as well. This teaching guides everything in our lives. Now, the early antecedents of the Trinity, uh, you'll find this, the very first evidence that you see of God in the Bible was in the first chapter in Genesis, where there are no mankind except later in that chapter. There's nothing, matter of fact, it's all void, and it's chaos. The earth was without form and void. It was literally wasteland. And basically that means everything is that way before God shows up. You know, and suddenly when God shows up, uh, suddenly things become different. And he entered this wasteland, this absolute void that had nothing to offer, and out of himself he created something beautiful. For whom? For us to enjoy. For our, it was created for our enjoyment. He's thinking about others. God-likeness is thinking about others. Did you get that? That's what God is all about. He's not for selfish concerns, but he wants to live, and all of his actions are for the sake of others. That's the first picture you have of God in the Bible, and it's borne out in the Trinity as well. Attempting an explanation of creation scientifically would simply rob God of all that he was trying to accomplish. Giving, giving, giving. Things it's not possible for us to have in any other way, so science is totally inept to explain it, you know? And so don't try to do that. And darkness was on the face of the deep, and there was nothing that you could possibly see. You couldn't make anything out, and God brings light. And suddenly, what was interesting about that, he didn't drive away darkness completely. He segregated it to the evening, you know, and the light was in the day. I have been impressed in many ways in uh, recent years about that truth. And this is a revelation of God, the kind of a God we worship. And so when we talk about God in our first three doctrines that we list in our list of 28 are about God. When we talk about them, we need to remember this wonderful truth about God, that he leaves the darkness while he brings in the light. I'm glad for that because he allows me to exist that way. 
Because there's darkness inside me that he's going to expose his light to. He takes people whose lives are void and chaotic and he just shines light on it. He doesn't get rid of it entirely. Eventually, light brings meaning and specialness everywhere. You know, I, I'm thinking over and over again how God was so patient with the Jews in the Old Testament. This is the same truth, that he would take people that had so much void and chaos in their life, and he worked with it. He didn't just rule it out, wipe it out, make it disappear. He was so long-suffering, so gracious. Christians who worship, please hear this, Christians who worship a Trinitarian God must think differently about how they deal with other people who have darkness and chaos and void in their lives. Can't just jump down on them in some kind of a legalistic, judgmental way. We must think and become more like God in the way we deal with them. The two became one. Darkness and light became one. And God called it what? Good. He called it good. So who are we to go around trying to do a lot of blaming when he said even the darkness was good? Sin separates toward disorder. And so where God brought order out of the darkness by bringing light and putting everything in its place, sin takes the light out and puts it right down into disorder, returns it to chaos. Uh, the flood was an example of that. On the second day of creation, I'm going to move through the days here to show you the first revelations we have of God are pretty outstanding in the Bible, and we need to be celebrating them a lot more than I think we do. Day two, he says, let there be a firmament, which basically separated water. It put some water up in the air and some down in the ground, you know, and gave us a firmament, a separation. And God does that. He puts things and separates them for their unique purpose. And after every one of these statements in, in Creation Week, you find these words, and it was so. He spoke it, and it happened. The first two days, he created the environment for life. He created a place for life. So what do these first two days of creation tell us about the Trinity? Darkness, void, which is godlessness. God's not around. He turns into light, God-likeness, and he calls them one. Creation embraces vast differences. Differentiation enhances life. Did you hear that? Any, whatever it is, that tries to pass judgment on differences is working against God. We've got to be... Jesus was not that way. He embraced them all. Opposites can be one. That's what... The second day of creation is all about. Third day, God creates seed or life after its kind. Grass, sea creatures, cattle, beasts, distinct species. God delights in variety and he wants it preserved and we know how essential each species is. We find out if we completely annihilate certain species on the planet, the consequences are enormous for everybody. Variety is extremely important. God made sure it was there. I, I, I have to stop here and make one more point here. Are churches more about variety and distinctiveness or conforming everybody to one? What is it? Yeah. 
Yeah, we got to be careful. The churches are basically known for being ungodlike in that way. God pronounces it good and he blesses it, what he's making. Light was good. First seven approval statements disappeared in all these chapters. And then he blesses seven times either names or blesses his creation. And you can see all of those statements there. Blessing basically says, I'm ensuring, I'm ensuring that this will succeed. I'm giving it an ongoing properties that will ensure its success. So, if you take on what God is doing in creation and become like God the way he wants us to be, he blesses that, ensures that we will be successful in that process. What the third day of creation tells us about God, he loves diversity. Why does God value it so highly? Diversity? Why? Yeah. Hasn't diversity, I mean, you take anything. You take any particular thing and you take a hundred people and they're going to see in that same thing something different. And as a result of that, all of the benefits of life we enjoy come as a result of that. Somebody sees a piece of wood that looks so ugly and they turn it into something beautiful like we're sitting on. Or they find some fabric. You have people that have the ability to see, like Vernon Nye in the picture out in the foyer. He used to live in this area, and he drove that, drew that picture for us. He sees things, and suddenly he makes them come alive on a piece of paper. You know? It's amazing. That's what diversity is all about. You squelch that, you squelch all the fun you're going to have in life. All the enjoyment you're going to have in life. Okay. God pronounces it good. God likes diversity. The Trinity is that way. He wants to ensure prosperity. And the third day teaches us about independence, yet harmony. Things have independence, but they're harmony. God-likeness is far different than how most Christian churches function. Most Christian churches, I hate to say this, are far from the picture that God paints for himself in Genesis chapter 1. The fourth day of creation, he creates sun, moon, and stars. The fifth day, he creates water and air. The sixth day, he creates land creatures. This is the getting closer to the goal of creation, to make somebody like himself, just like himself. Wow. Who's he talking about there? Us! Do you ever get that picture of him kneeling down over that lump of clay that he had formed so beautifully and putting his lips and his, right on the nostrils of Adam? And holding him, caressing him, like a mother with a newborn baby. Finally that baby has arrived. She puts it up and they just attach. And they love each other. There's a bond that you can never break between those two. And that's what happened with Adam and Eve and, and God. Let us make man in our image, to our likeness. God created man, woman, they're both very different. And he says, now I want you to become one took her out of him and said, now you get back together. Those of you that are involved in marriage know that's not an easy task. Just, I mean, even if there were two people of the same sex, it's hard to see how you can get together in any way. But you take the opposite sexes where, you know, some of the stuff that got taken out of Adam is really gone from him. <laughs> you, know? And, you know, and she doesn't have some of the stuff that he has. How do they get together? That's the whole purpose of life. 
And in that process, we become more godlike as we work through those differences. And then the seventh day, creation of the Sabbath, God created time and space and then sanctified them both and called it Sabbath. Time for a timeless God who has no need for time whatsoever created time. And space that is exhaustless for God is now defined and he meets with Adam and Eve on this day. Physical, anchored by time, he meets with them. Big universe, he's here with Adam and Eve. It's a memorial of creation which is in itself a symbol of the Trinity. The deity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they were one and equal and they chose to become diverse because of love for us. You, you follow what I'm saying there? They were one, they were equal, and then suddenly Jesus is no longer the way he was, became a man. Holy Spirit is no longer the way the Holy Spirit was, becomes different. That's the way it worked, the oneness, the Trinity worked for them. And it was driven by the need of mankind. It tells us something about his church. We are made in his image. When we go out into the world, this is the model. We actually become different in our desire and attempt to serve other people. It changes us. Here's mankind. Adam and Eve were one. They were made diverse into two. And they were called equal. The church, the Jew and the Gentile, very diverse, called to be one, called to be equal. <laughs> we're all talking about Trinity here. It's just variations of Trinity. Themes of redemption. Those that belong, if you really worship a God, Trinitarian God, those that belong are willing to surrender it to those who don't belong. That's Trinity God. Those that have everything give up what they have so that those who have nothing will be full. And many are the examples of Jesus and the Father about that. And those that are different are treated as equals. Now this is our first three statements of what we believe. And if they guide the way we live and the way we are as human beings, the way we act as husbands and wives, as parents and children, and all of our behavior towards one another in whatever capacity, the world would be a vastly different place, wouldn't it? Here's a text that was read for us by Dr. Today. John 17, that they all may be one. Who is saying this? Jesus. This is in his high priestly prayer. This meant something to him, and it meant something to the Father who he was talking to. This is what Jesus was asking. We got on our knees a little while ago, and we prayed to God. It meant something to us, what we were asking for. This is Jesus asking. Father, you art in me, and I in thee, that they may be one as one in us. That's Trinity. Unity. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The world is waiting for a demonstration of this. It's always been wanting this to happen. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So the Trinity is the gospel, isn't it? It's the hope of it all. It governs everything he does. It governs his feelings, his thoughts, his actions. Everything is tied up in this word, Trinity. Two, three, particularly three individuals here 
that have chosen to invest all for the sake of others. And that's the model. His first thought will always be relationality and unity. Relationships demand huge amounts of love. Happily, my wife and I are finally getting to the place where we don't argue much anymore. <laughs> Have you been praying for me? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so wonderful because when you get to that place, no longer are you serving self, you're basically living to serve the other. And, and you know, and I... For the first time in my wife's entire life, she has someone to listen to her. And she is growing so fast, and I am growing so fast. And we, we talk more and more about what the Lord's plan is for our lives rather than what our disappointments are. And we're changing. And I'm just so happy that this is not just abstract stuff. This is truth. It is the core of God's identity, this about the Trinity. So what do we know of the Trinity? The Father... He lives separate from us. Our sins have separated us from the Father, Isaiah 59. Who is the best example of the Father that we have in the Bible? The prodigal son's father. Jesus told that story, didn't he? I think it was about the Father in heaven. A a kind of a love that all of us, if we were loved that way, would be very different. Very different. And it's about the son who is comfortable, even though he's equal, with being submissive compared to the two different visions of the sons in Luke chapter 15 with the prodigal. They knew the father would never leave and forsake him. That's Jesus. He knew the father would never leave and forsake him. He claimed connection to the Jewish, uh, to the father, uh, Oh, his claimed connection to the father the Jewish leaders hated. Now, listen to this. Monotheism, Judaism, hated the fact that Jesus claimed to be connected to the father. So a belief structure that they believed was right was closing their minds from hearing anything otherwise. Dangerous, very dangerous. And if you read John chapter 8 and several chapters in the book of John, Jesus, John talks more about the connection between Jesus and the Father in John than you'll find anywhere else in the Bible. Twice as much as in the other Gospels. It's amazing. He constantly claimed that everything he did was of the Father. He said, I and my Father are one. I am in my Father and he and ye in me and I in you. He that loveth, hateth me hateth my Father also. In John... Uh, as I already said, the message about the Father is pretty powerful. It's ever-present. And then finally, the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, sent to build oneness. John reveals more about him than any other writer. So what do we know about them? We know a whole lot. And you know what? If we knew the Trinity, we would have a lot in our lives. If we lived it an amazing amount. Jesus said we are baptized in the name of all three, which means we must become like this model. So, what do you think? With God on our side, how can we lose? 
If God doesn't he didn't hesitate to put everything online for us, embracing our condition, exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even put a finger, uh, point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us. And do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? This is Trinity language. There is no way. Not trouble, nor hard times, nor hatred, nor hunger, nor homelessness, nor bullying threats, nor backstabbing. <laughs> yeah, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pluck us off one by one. None of this phases us because what? Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced, Paul says, that nothing, nothing living nor dead, angelic or demonic, Today, tomorrow, high, low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our Master, has embraced us. Because of the Trinity's commitment, because of the model that they have set for us, we can say things like that. How could we not be drawn toward God who is like that? The Trinity, reaching out, putting everything online for us, Linking themselves to us at great personal risk, doing it joyfully and endlessly, uh, jealously protecting us, not, nothing, living or dead, angelic or demonic, today, tomorrow, high, low, unthinkable, can change us. This is the core of what belief in the Trinity means. Now, why don't we say those first three statements about God in our doctrinal statements a little about this? We, the presentation we have of God in those first three statements are pretty sterile. This is what they, I think, need to be saying. How could anyone object to this teaching? Here's another passage. You're going to love this one. I will heal their waywardness. I will love them lavishly. My anger is played out. I will make a fresh start with Israel. And it says, he'll burst into bloom like a crocus in the spring. He'll put down deep oak roots. He'll become a forest of oaks. He'll become splendid like a giant sequoia, his fragrance like a grove of cedars. Those who live near him will be blessed by him, be blessed and prosper like golden grain. Everyone will be talking about them, spreading their fame as the vintage children of God. Ephraim is finished with gods that are no gods. From now on, I am the one who answers and satisfies him. I am the, the luxurious uh, fruit tree Everything you need is to be found in where? In Jesus. That's right. God's emotional attachment to us in all of our troubles, he was troubled too. He didn't send someone else, he sent himself in person. Out of his personal love and pity, he redeemed us, he rescued us, carried them along long time. After all that he has done for him over all the centuries, Always followed by our withholding, our love for him, he asks, can you think of anything that I could have done in my vineyard, his people, that I didn't do? When I expected good grapes, why did I get bitter grapes? This is life eternal, that you might know thee, that they might know thee, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I'm just going through some various Bible verses here that say wonderful things about the Father. 
Ye have heard that it has been said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, ye resist not evil. Whatsoever, whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twice the distance. Give to him what that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not away. Why does it say this? That's the way God is. And we are made in whose image? God's image. And if we believe that God is that way, those things will govern our lives. It will be our beliefs. We have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Isn't that what Jesus did? While we were yet enemies or sinners, he came for us, died for us. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Well, you can see all of these things talk about the way God is and they are messages to us to become God-like. If thou bring a gift to the altar and rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, what are you supposed to do? And then do what? Be reconciled. Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art on the way with him and let it at, the, at any time, lest at any time thy adversary deliver thee unto the judge and the judge deliver thee to the officer and thou shalt go to prison. John's mess, Jesus' message is we have to be one at all price. There shouldn't be differences between us. Now listen to this. Israel started out right. In the books of Moses, when he finally summed up the law at the end of his long life to give it to the people before he left them, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he said very clearly, love God, your God, with all your whole heart. Love him with all that is in you. Love him with all you've got. The Jews were so enamored with that, they thought the best way to actually show how enamored they were is they made little boxes. They tied to their foreheads and they put that little passage right in that box. They can say, see, we love God. <laughs> with all of our... Now what does love God mean? If you love God, so I love my wife. What does that mean? Yeah, I'm go am I going to dishonor her? Am I going to seek to be, bring her with the greatest happiness? Oh, yeah. Going to be truthful to her, uphold her. Well, they put these things on their forehead, and the box, doorposts of the home, etc. You can even find them on rooms in Jerusalem today that way. And they were instructed to teach them diligently to their children. And so they spent their entire lives doing that and rejected the God that actually gave that law. The God who is three. And they, how sad, that in the land that should represent, that grace the footprints of the Lord God Almighty, there should be so much anger that they want to kill each other all the time. Who are they killing? Their cousins. What's wrong? They don't know God. And that's the trouble with a lot of, you know, these strict, literalistic views of God. They get to this idea they think they're being godlike when they are hurting and persecuting others in the name of God. 
The Jews soon eliminated the Trinity from divinity. They saw only the oneness, the singular, the fact that the three chose to be one. They said, well, that's only singular. But when you go through the Bible, you can find out, why is it that you have God in Genesis 1, plural, Elohim, created, which is singular? You have a plural with a singular. What is that saying? The plural acts as one. Therefore, we must act as one too, not denying our plurality. The Pharisees sought security by trusting self and obedience rather than God. The Sadducees trusted politics and position. They thought the organization would save them. The Essenes, another group of the Jews, created separate holy communes. They thought that was the best way to be godlike. Truth becomes legalism, organization, and escapism. Can you see this in churches today? All churches fall into one or more of these traps if we're not careful. What traps have Adventists succumbed to? Actually, they succumbed to all three. There are branches of Adventists that do all. How can we escape that fate? Going back to the picture of what God is. He revealed himself that way. Jesus was made like his brothers in every way that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Well, if that's a message the way God is, then the Jews are going to be be thinking about their brethren around them and somehow finding ways to serve them and love them. And you would have, instead of being a place where they hate and they kill each other, you'd find a place where there's a model of love around the world. Two-thirds of the angels rebelled. Who held out the olive branch of reconciliation? God did. When rebellion infected God's perfect creation, who stepped up to pay the price? God did. And by the way, well, I'm going to leave that aside. This is the core truth, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed. You think about God, you look at him, you study him, it changes us. We become different people. When religion becomes abstractions about God rather than revelations of who he is, it becomes powerless and meaningless. Can Adventists fall into the trap? What do the following doctrines tell us about God? And what do they reveal about his character? And if we don't know, then we probably are powerless and meaningless. Here they are. That's the summation of the 28 doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So I've been trying to talk a little bit today about the first one, and two weeks ago, about the Trinity. And it tells us a whole different picture than you're going to find by reading those three statements. You know, there is a wonderful message there, a wonderful gospel there that transforms our lives. We have to somehow reform these things that none of these doctrines are wrong. None of them are wrong, but we have to say them in a way that doesn't put the onus on us, that it isn't about us and what we have to do to obey. It's about God and the kind of God. When we see that, by beholding, we become changed. That's grace. It changes us. It not only changes our attitude about God, it changes the way we deal with one another, how we use our time, how we use our money, all the things that the rest of these things talk about. It, talks, it, it reveals the way God is going to treat the wicked and deal with the wicked in the last days. And it governs that. And we need to understand that. 
or we'll say the wrong picture about God and it drives people away. We've got to be careful that in our preaching the truth, we don't destroy the gospel, the character of God. So that's what we're going to be doing if you have the patience with me. <laughs> we're going to take our little journey through these doctrines over the next many, many months and try to show how the gospel is in, in those things. Jesus' greatest wish, that they all may be what? One. Doctor, read this for us. One. He wants us to be one. They, plural, one. <laughs> Elohim, plural, created one. <laughs> Singular. See, they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, as the plural trinity are, that they are together, and the Holy Spirit is in that as well, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. If we can live the doctrine of the Trinity, the prayer of Jesus, it'll transform the world. If you go out there and just tell them that God has always lived, he's never going to die, he's always alive, that doesn't change people's lives. You tell them that Jesus, you know, uh, and the Holy Spirit, you tell them those sterile teachings that we have, you've got to talk about it in the context of salvation and what it's all about. It changes everything. Oh, isn't that cute? That's the end. Did that clock start working? I ended on time. Can you believe that? It's working. It's only an hour short. It's 11 o'clock right now. It's 12 o'clock. That clock is, is right on time. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. But it's an hour. It's, it's 11 o'clock now. So it hasn't been changed. But it's, it's keeping time. Better than I do sometimes. I hope that you will hear what I'm saying not in an attack upon any of our doctrines. I believe in all of them. I just think that if we can get to the place of saying them and teaching them in the right way, that they become irresistible. That people will want them to embrace them. Why would you turn away from them if they are said the way we try to say it today? You know, otherwise, if you don't say it this way, you can get to some really heavy-duty theological arguments, can't you? And miss the whole point. So, so it, this, is, this is what it's all about. So I think that, and by the way, the glory of the Lord is going to be manifest in the last days before he comes back. He's waiting for that. It's this kind of stuff that actually does that. So Adventist role, uh, and with all other Christian churches, is to send this message out, not only just in, in words, but for example, I'm, I'm a member of the Ministerial Association in, in Willits with the other churches. And those churches were not able to get along. Those pastors were not able to get along. And so they stopped meeting. And they, they held residually in their hearts ill will towards each other for things that had happened in the past. And so now my role, as just an example, is to go through that journey of helping to heal that and that we, pastors of other Christian churches, can become one. Can become one. And no way having to sacrifice any of our teachings. Never. But why would anybody want to sacrifice a teaching that is so beautiful as that? So, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. And I try to do that with every individual that I, I come in contact with. And I'm wanting to, all of us in our church, we're going to be having an evangelistic series later in the year. And we love Jack. He's coming again. And these people that are going to be coming to the meetings are going to look at us and they're going to say, 
you know a whole lot more and they're going to be looking to us to teach them, to share, to help them to understand what Jack is saying to them. And so I, I wanted to kind of give us a little heads up on some of this stuff so that we can learn how to do that. And if you didn't get it all, thanks to Albert back there, uh, he's putting it up on the website. So um, he's doing well for us. May the gracious God be with you all as we leave here and to go out into our world, into our life, reflecting you, being totally caught up in rapture of who you are and what you've done and why you have done it the way you have done it at your own great personal risk just because you've loved us. Teach us to become more like you, to honor and uphold you and glorify your name in some small way in our little world this day and in this coming week and each week to follow. Keep us. Remember the prayers that we've laid before you and give us your loving protection and our opportunities to witness for you in this week to come, in Jesus' name, amen.